find rock, dig hole, pull out rock, crush rock, then pop it on a boat and send it to another part of the world where that rock is going to get turned into something completely different. But what exactly happens to these rocks when they leave our shores? And more importantly, are Australian investors missing out because they don't have exposure to the refining part of the metal supply chain? Especially too, given that China absolutely dominates the refining process of specialty metals. Today, I'm going to introduce you to a vertically integrated cobalt miner and refiner. Plus, through a very strategic acquisition, they will soon be running a class one nickel refinery. Hello, I'm Shay Russell and welcome back to Cocktails and Commodities, the resource podcast where macro analysis meets mining insights. While you're here, don't leave a girl hanging and tap the like button. And please remember that all information in this podcast is general in nature and not financial advice. Joining me in the Cocktails and Commodities studio today is James May, the Chief Financial Officer of Jovar Global. Today I ask James, out of all the specialty metals, why cobalt? How Jovar benefits from being in both the extraction and the refining part of the business? And why this patience play will have three income generating assets by 2025? Shay Russell here from Cocktails and Commodities, and today I'm joined by James May, CFO of Jevoir Global. James, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Shay. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, how is what is the correct pronunciation of Jevoir Global? So, Jevoir is the way we pronounce it. And oh, look, the history there was uh, the, the company's existed for many years on the on the ASX and. After going through quite a significant reset of the company with board and management transformation in 2017, uh, there was a review process. Do we look to rebrand? Do we change the name? Uh, the answer was no. The answer was uh, let's keep let's keep the name. Let's make this company about uh, the company and its its direction and ultimately its delivery. Uh, and we just softly changed the the pronunciation to say it with a French accent. That remains a good talking point with investors and customers and many of other stakeholders. Before we move on to talking about the flagship project that you have out in Finland, which is terribly exciting, you've got quite a diverse um, global footprint. In fact, you know, there's there's a almost an operation in every corner of the world. Tell me, how do you manage this cost effectively for shareholders? Yeah, thanks, Shay. It's look, really two two parts of that, that answer. So, um, you know, whilst we're a globally spread team, we're, we're a very close-knit team in terms of leadership and, and board. So. Yeah, we use the technology effectively. Uh, we're kind of super flexible in terms of how we manage uh, engagement and comms internally and externally. Uh, but really more importantly, we put that together with a culture that we've created of having strong uh, local management teams that are empowered to uh, run their businesses, run their projects, uh, really capitalizing on you know, people with really good, strong experience in those jurisdictions. And uh, that, that's also become key, one of the keys to our success in managing this international portfolio. Look, it's a remarkable feat to be able to manage three uh, projects across the world. So I'm very impressed clearly with what the management team is doing. But let's talk about what your Finland project is. And I sort of mentioned it at the start of this uh, podcast today. Australians aren't really familiar with the refining aspect of things. As I, you know, I sort of made a joke, dig hole centre China. But that's what a lot of shareholders understand. They understand those mechanisms. Whereas you're part of the value add chain when it comes to a commodity. And that's really exciting. Uh, so let's talk about this, um, the Finland project, because you've got 250 people working on it, don't you? Yeah, that's that's right, Shay. So look, to place it in context, our Finland business, it's a, a refining and cobalt manufacturing business. 
uh, one of the key assets, and as you correctly highlight, it's very much playing in that refining part of the value chain uh, for cobalt. And you know, strategically, what's exciting about the Finland business is that, you know, as we as we think about this demand growth trajectory that's ahead of us, and you know, we are going to see uh, a level of constraints, particularly in Western world processing capacity. There's a capability we've got in terms of uh, the skills of, of, of refining and uh, manufacturing and, and selling uh, cobalt products that we think is pretty unique. And we certainly think as demand grows, then you know, this Finland, uh, our Finland operation has got a great sort of profitable future. But why Finland? I mean, nobody thinks of Finland as a specialty metals refining hub. Yeah, so look, a bit of background to Finland. Uh, we actually acquired the asset from uh, Freeport, the global copper mining company, back in 2021. Uh, really, that asset at the time being a processing arm for cobalt used to be run in a way that was integrated with some upstream cobalt mines in Africa under former ownership. Now, as sort of Freeport went through their own uh, portfolio journey, the asset came up for sale. Uh, ultimately, we acquired that in 2021. And what the business actually is, is that we're, uh, we've got relationships with, with a range of suppliers to bring in uh, unrefined cobalt hydroxide. We go through two production stages on the Cochlear Industrial Park, a traditional refining stage, and, and then a manufacturing stage where uh, product passes through both a chemicals plant and, and for some products through a powders plant, uh, to then to produce you know, a reasonably wide variety of products for a range of both industrial and battery uses. And so what's remarkable about sort of Finland and the location, which is in Kokkola, uh, about sort of four hours north of Helsinki, it's it's a ready-made sort of ecosystem. Mm. Um, it's you know got a deep water port, it's in the heart of an industrial park, and you're seeing a lot of national governments really want to create and foster these styles of ecosystems. And what we've got in Finland uh, with our operation there is already kind of sitting already in the heart of what is a, a really sort of neat um, uh, part of the world uh, where we can attract all the right skills and we've got all the right sort of credentials, history, um, and a supportive regulatory environment to, to, to successfully operate that business in the long term. Because it really is a specialised knowledge and to have that in um, part of the EU is quite remarkable. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Shay. So, you know, sort of strategically, uh, one of the advantages we think is going to play out quite strongly over the next sort of 10 years is that you're seeing this growth trajectory, particularly with uh, automakers and plans for uh, gigafactories to support electric vehicle growth. And that's playing out all across Europe uh, with you know, certain policy tailwinds from national governments in terms of looking to actively promote and stimulate that demand. Now, what we've got in Finland is an industrial operation that's got one of the key ingredients that can directly serve um, that value chain uh, and doing that from Europe's doorstep, where there's you know, in an environment where there's growing appetite for that, that regional localised supply. So how does this work with vertical uh, chain integration? Because as you pointed out, we've, we've tried to, we're trying to reshore or nearshore so much of this, um, the processing supply chain away from China. So how does Finland and uh, the Finland asset fit in with Javar's global? You know, I'm going to trip over that word a couple of times today. How does the Finland asset um, fit in being part of the vertically integrated supply chain for refined specialty metals? Yeah, <coughs> so with, with that sort of integrated uh, value chain integration, we've 
you know, consciously developed a portfolio where we've got assets upstream of mining in the US, and then we've got uh, assets, you know, particularly our flagship operation in Finland, but in the refining value chain. And what we think is going to occur is that um, what we'll see is, is that as, as demand evolves, sometimes you'll see bottlenecks in, in mining that will favour miners, uh, sometimes you'll see bottlenecks in the refining segment. And what we achieve through having that diversification and uh, assets that are exposed to different parts of the value chain, it gives us that uh, long-term benefit to, you know, as those bottlenecks move around to, to capture those benefits. One of the questions I like to ask, uh, you know, CFOs, MDs, CEOs, it doesn't matter who walks through the door, is what is the one question most shareholders ask you? Because odds are, if you're hearing that question from a shareholder, other shareholders have that question. So what do you hear most often when it comes to Javar global um, operations? Look, often, Shay, we hear the question around why, why refining? That it's not as, you know, compare and contrast it to the mining stories that are out there, uh, which are far more sort of simplified for many, which is around, you know, dig it out of the ground economically and, uh, yeah, send it for export and, and make a profit in the process. Refining is obviously slightly different. It's a different business model. Uh, we get asked this question around why refining? And, you know, really our response to that is sort of twofold. The first sort of part of the answer is is more sort of strategic. We, uh, we believe as this industry sector evolves that refiners and particularly those with installed capacity are going to be significantly advantaged uh, in terms of their role in the value chain. So, you know, for many of the, the downstream users, be it uh, battery makers, OEMs, uh, they actually need and want to be served up uh, for their long-term use, the refined products. So in our case, it's often sort of cobalt sulfate as an ingredient that goes directly into batteries. And so to do that, they have to interface with a refiner or, or someone who's got an association with a refinery. And in the process, we see refineries as having this sort of key role, sort of fitting this juncture between uh, you know, the upstream part and, and the downstream part, really kind of sitting at the heart of you know, much of the action that's going to occur in the next five or 10 years. Second part of the answer to the question is really about the business itself. It's just got a different profile. So some mines, as many will know, they can make spectacular margins, things go well. Higher cost mines you know, tend to struggle in weaker parts of the cycle. Uh, our Finland business, the processing model, uh, it's a relatively low margin business compared to mining, but it can make a margin through the cycle. And that together with the sheer long datedness of the asset, these assets actually run for, these refineries can run for many, many decades. It's just got you know, a really unique, uh, you know, unique set of attributes that, that, that we find uh, to be a really attractive part of the portfolio. So your second part answer to that question led me exactly where I want to go next. Um, let's talk about the upside and the downsides. Obviously, the cobalt price is a little rough right now, so much so that you've had to temporary, or you did, suspend operations in the Idaho mine, and we will get to that in yep. a moment. But from a shareholder point of view, how do you how do you weather the downside from a refining? Like, are you are you still able to extract value on that? So there's not too much pressure on your margins. That, that that's a great question, Shay. So this is exactly the focus we've been through as we've gone through this period of temporary cyclical weakness in the cobalt price um, uh, that we have taken steps to ensure our business is, is resilient. Uh, we got a somewhat sort of buffered by some of the downside volatility last year that reflected in our results. Uh, but as we sort of move through into this year, we have stabilized those margins. We returned to positive EBITDA in Q2. 
we announced we generated 30 million US of, of cash flow uh, from operations in Finland in the second quarter as well, uh, which both came from that stability in the operating margin uh, and some release of working capital uh, as well. And so, look, we really like that sort of part of the business model that means we can generate a margin at all parts of the cycle and helps sort of underpin the wider portfolio uh, so that we are, we do have that level of resilience um, in the business. That's actually, uh, so that's, uh, this is the problem with commodity-based com- stocks be, well, like yours, uh, simply because you're right, you are, the, the share price has been weathered down based on the commodity, but as you've just pointed out, there's upside throughout your entire integration that you've got with all the assets that you're working on. That's very clever and quite strategic, if you don't mind me saying. No, thanks, Jay. It's, um, look, there's some really interesting attributes to our portfolio. I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot that's occurred in terms of share price performance. We have suffered a lot of share price weakness. Uh, we've been quite open in terms of, you know, some of the things we could have done differently in the last 18 months. And we also recognise that as a, you know, a company primarily exposed to cobalt, that this sort of period of cyclical weakness um, in the cobalt price isn't helping either in terms of, you know, the ripple effects that's, that's had on the company and uh, how it sort of shows up in terms of our share price performance as well. But where we do have, you know, confidence as we look forward, uh, you know, we do have a plan in place to... Uh, ultimately transition the portfolio from being one operation today mm. uh, to being a multi-asset uh, portfolio in the future. Um, James, I want to sort of emphasise the very strong management team that you've got in place. And obviously this goes back to the company's restructure and how well it's been handled. Now you've got the Idaho Cobalt Operation, uh, the Idaho Cobalt Operation Mine, is that what it's called? Have I got the correct technical name? Yeah, or, or, or ICO for short. ICO, okay, ICO, got you. I'm going to stick with that one. Um, so you've got the ICO mine, and uh, look, that, that's the largest, highest-grade cobalt mine in the US, isn't it? That's correct. That's terribly exciting, and you know anybody might be tempted just to dig it up for the sake of it, but your management team has been quite financially prudent, and they decided to uh, just put the mine into care and maintenance until the, price was str- the cobalt price was stronger. Um, which is a, a wonderful management decision, by the way. I think more companies should be commended for doing things like that. Um, but then, out of the out of nowhere, the U.S. Department of Defense came in and offered a grant, I believe, or a partnership deal to invest fifteen million dollars in. No, thanks, Jay. And so, ICO. Yeah, I mean, to, to to add to that, we took the difficult decision to suspend our um, Idaho Cobalt operations project in March this year when it was very, very close to the completion of construction. And as you highlight, the key reason for doing that is uh, this cyclical weakness we've seen in the cobalt price. It, it just uh, was economically and for the company, it was the right thing to do was to suspend those operations. And I think, you know, testament to how we've developed our relationships with key stakeholders, uh, the Department of Defense has awarded this $50 million grant, as you indicate, uh, and the purpose of that is to support additional drilling of the resource. Um, now, we did our original studies in Idaho based on uh, a seven-year mine life. It's We're starting with a you know, relatively modest-sized underground mine, and you know what's of interest to the United States government is for this asset to really become a durable, long-term uh, fixture of the domestic supply chain because the US has no domestic supply of cobalt in any uh, scale and uh, really the loan that or sorry the grant that we've secured under the Defense Production Act we see as you know the first stage in what we hope will continue to be a really sort of strong 
partnership that we um, continue to develop with, with multiple agencies across the US government. Uh, how does the ICO mine benefit from the recent Inflation Reductions Act from the US, or does it at all? Yeah, there's a look. There's a number of um, policy tailwinds that over time will favourably impact uh, ICO. So, again, notwithstanding the current sort of suspended state at ICO, we continue to um, advance our engagement with a range of agencies in Washington DC, um, and you know the IRA is sort of one component of one of the policy sort of tailwinds that will ultimately favour uh, the economics of the mine uh, for the long term. So under the RA, there's a number of provisions, including uh, something called the Section 45X. Uh, that's part of the Act that confers for critical mineral producers, so eligible critical mineral producers in the US will become eligible for an operating, ta uh, an operating cost credit uh, to the tune of sort of 10%. So across your cost base, you effectively get 10% of it uh, from the discounted or, or credited back from the government via uh, a special process. So what's occurring is the regulations for uh, that, um, uh, the, the, the regulations are in drafting mode. Uh, we eagerly anticipate those regulations being published and from there we'll be in a position to uh, establish exactly what the eligibility is for, for ICO. But certainly it's sort of one of a number of policy tailwinds that are potentially significant in terms of um, you know, what ICO is potentially to be in the future. It look, it's very exciting there. And again, it does add weight to uh, management's, uh, the management, it does add weight to what management's strategic direction has been. So I do think it's um, worked out very well for you. But I do want to touch on uh, one, the third asset that we did talk about at the start of today's conversation. Now, let's see if I can pronounce it correctly again. Sao Miguel Polista. Yep, that's right, so. Yes, I nailed it. The nickel refinery, or um, the uh, nickel, soon to be nickel refinery in Brazil. Now, it's not operational yet, is it? That's right. So the background to SMP was we acquired it out I of could have been saying SMP all this time. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We tend to abbreviate everything in, uh, okay. in the company. But, uh, so SMP, really, again, another really interesting uh, strategically positioned asset. So we acquired the mine, uh, sorry, we acquired the refinery. Uh, out of care maintenance from the former Brazilian owner, which was Botter and Tin, through their CBA subsidiary. Uh, we've, we've done over 12 months of studies on a pathway uh, to restart the refinery. Um, former owners, a, a diversified group, didn't uh, want to take that forward on a standalone basis. And so what we're targeting is a uh, financing process and a final investment decision that working through for the remaining part of this year that includes advanced engagement with a number of potential partners uh, who we believe will come on board to uh, support the financing of the restart and then over the course of about 12 plus months through 2024 we need we'll deploy around 65 million us in capital expenditure for that restart uh, project which is a lot of refurbishment of this plant and uh, uh, with a view to bring it into production in 2025. So again, a little bit like sort of Finland, but for nickel, uh, you know, strategically well-positioned asset, it's a refinery. Uh, you know, what we expect to happen over time is the subject to demonstrating that profitable restart of the operation uh, is then that to sort of help unlock some further opportunities uh, in the region over time. 
Uh, Brazil's a fantastic jurisdiction. There's a lot going on in terms of mining. There's, there's sort of nickel projects everywhere. And, you know, we think SMB is a very exciting project to become, uh, you know, our second cash-generating asset in the portfolio uh, through the course of the next couple of years. All right, James, using the company lingo, the SMP refinery, um, why nickel? Because it seems like such a departure from cobalt, which is a specialty metal. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, it's a fair question. And, and, you know, part of the answer is actually in, in the question, which is that we do want diversification. So not only do we want diversification by asset, but, you know, we believe that uh, over time it, it's, it's healthy to have that, that nickel exposure. Nickel itself is exposed to, you know, really good, strong demand trends, particularly from uh, the battery sector. And, you know, more than that as well, there's, there's a set of you know, technical and commercial synergies that sort of we sit across uh, the Finland and Brazil uh, assets in terms of leveraging strengths in particular of you know, building critical mass around technical capability for you know, non-China refineries. So, you know, it's a great example where uh, we'd hope to do this more and more over time, but we continue to leverage the technical strengths we have around refining and processing know-how and knowledge, uh, particularly in Finland, and you know, deploy that in a targeted way in Brazil as well. Uh, and we think, you know, once we bring online SMP, uh, we'll have SMP and, and, and Finland ready as this sort of core uh, refining um, part of the portfolio. But why Brazil from a, an asset point of view? Surely there could be other nickel refining options somewhere else. Well, actually, Shay, it's kind of interesting because when we think about this strategically, there's you know, the SMP refinery ran successfully for 35 years between 1981 and 2016 before it went into care and maintenance. And it ran as the only class one nickel refinery uh, in Latin America. So again, when we kind of look at the strategic positioning of where we want to be long term, it's you know really getting this beachhead into sort of critical jurisdictions and key regions, again, to capitalize on that demand growth we expect to see for you know, non-China supply of critical minerals. Uh, arguably, we could paint Javar as sort of a patience play because while you've got one income generating asset now and you've got two that are arguably at the most expensive part while you're ramping up operations, you're on track to have three assets generating income by 2025. Is that correct? Yes, it's uh, it's a good way to put it. It's a patience play, but we're also in a hurry. So um, <laughs> the key for us really in that next stage, you're right, it's, it's, it's getting... Uh, SMP online through that partner financing initiative, uh, bring on that online as a second cash generating portfolio. And then, look, ICO does need some support from the cobalt price uh, to get back to somewhere near historical norms that we'd expect to see over time. So harder to pinpoint specifically when we think uh, ICO will come back online, but absolutely that goal remains, you know, have a strong base business uh, in, in the medium term that's characterized by multiple cash generating assets. And then look, once we've done that, each of the assets then has further growth options that we can lean into um, over time as this demand trajectory sort of accelerates for critical minerals. Look, it's a really exciting story here. And I think what I like the most is it's quite refreshing to not have the, the typical exploration story here. Uh, in Australia, I know there's been a lot of conversations around the value add and being part of that value add chain. Now, Australia doesn't really have Manu many manufacturing capabilities or processing abilities on our shores. So what you've essentially done is gone and created those processing abilities but brought them to the ASX. It's a good way to put it, Shay. And uh, look, we, we continue to uh, engage diverse number of investors in our story and um, 
we look look forward to uh, continuing to achieve our milestones in the years ahead. I am going to be looking forward to following your milestones. I think there's some great potential here. But before you go, James, nobody leaves this studio without being asked one same question. And that is, if we're in a bar, now it could be a Finnish bar, a US bar, or a Brazilian bar, what cocktail would I be buying you? Well, it's nearly always a gin and tonic. So, um, look, key to that, I think, is you know good, reliable, solid gin, but then a good quality tonic. Uh, fresh lime, or depending on the jurisdiction, sometimes a bit of a twist. So uh, I know that when I've travelled to Finland, for example, it comes with fresh cranberries and some other delights as well. Oh, lovely. Uh, you said a good quality gin. Do you have a preferred gin? Uh, a good sort of base load gin like a Bombay Sapphire, or uh-huh. I don't mind some of the boutique gins as well mm-hmm. sometimes. Okay. Listen, James, this has been awesome. Uh, I loved seeing you present uh, last week when you were in Melbourne, and I've really enjoyed today's conversation. Uh, more than anything, it's always exciting to talk about a company that's going to be part of the value add chain and part of the processing of specialty chemicals which uh, as we know we so desperately need our sources outside of that concentrated supply so thank you so much for being here thanks jay appreciate it that brings my chat with james to a close for today but you can leave your thoughts in the comment box below now make sure you're following cocktails and commodities so you always know what stocks are making news the commodities moving markets and the companies trying to get it out of the ground